Good morning, Christ Prez. Today is the second Sunday of Advent, which is a season of waiting. We look back on the ancient people of God who are waiting for the promised Messiah to come, and we also look forward to the day when this same one will come again to make all things new. We remember and celebrate not only Jesus' first coming, his first Advent, but we also turn our hearts and minds to his second coming, his last Advent. And Revelation, especially these last chapters of the book, can help us in our waiting because Revelation reminds us of the story we live in and where the story is headed. It reminds us that history is moving toward an end, a goal. It tells us that if we want to live faithfully right here and right now, we need some vision of what's coming. And so it pulls back the curtains and says, here's your future. Here's what's on the way. You can't see it yet, but it's coming. Live your life today in light of this unseen future reality for which you wait. In these weeks of Advent, we're, re- we're being reminded about the big story we're living in, and, and we're reminded of what it is and who it is that we really need, and also what it is and who it is that we're really waiting for. Last week, we saw that when we wait for the coming of Jesus Christ, one of the things we're waiting for is the defeat of evil. There will come a day when evil is done away with finally and decisively. This week, we see that as we wait for the coming of Jesus Christ, we wait for our true love. We wait for one who loves us as a bridegroom loves his bride. To get at this, I wanna wanna look at how this metaphor plays out in the Bible. Let's look at the relationship with us God wants, the relationship with us God has, and then what God does to close the gap. Okay, so first, um, let's look at the relationship that God wants with us. One of the extraordinary themes that comes out in the Old Testament is that the relationship God wants with his people is like a marriage. Maybe the best place to see this is in the book of Hosea. God tells Hosea, remember, to go and marry Gomer, and Hosea's marriage is meant to be a little parable of God's relationship with his people. But it's not just Hosea that picks up this theme. It runs throughout the prophets, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah. And it's really a kind of shocking metaphor. The relationship that God wants with us isn't just like a shepherd to his sheep or a king to his servants or a father to his children. The relationship God wants with us is closer, deeper, far more intimate than any of those other metaphors might suggest. He wants a marital relationship with us. And so in Hosea, we read this, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my master. That's kind of an astounding thing to say, but God's saying it. He's speaking through Hosea, looking forward to the future and saying, one day you will call me husband. That's the relationship he desires with us, not just a shepherd with his sheep, not just a ruler over his people, not just a father with his children, but a husband with his bride. The same theme is picked up in a powerful way in Isaiah. We read this, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Later we read this, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 
See, this is the relationship God wants with us, the relationship of a bridegroom to his bride. Now, what does it mean to say that? What does it mean to say that God wants this kind of relationship with us? You know, I imagine there are all kinds of implications, but let me highlight just a couple. First, intimacy. God wants our relationship with him to be one of deep intimacy. One of the ways this comes through in the Old Testament is with language about knowing the Lord. In the Bible, remember, knowing someone is often about so much more than just knowing their name or being an acquaintance of that person. Knowing implies having deep relational relational intimacy with the person. In the Old Testament, when God says, you shall know me, that means he wants a real intimate personal relationship with us. Marriages, at least good ones, involve deep relational intimacy. If you're married, you know your spouse better than you know anyone else, and your spouse knows you better than anyone else does. God wants to know us fully and to be fully known by us. He doesn't want to be our Facebook friend. He doesn't want to be the uncle we only see at special holidays. He wants to be like a husband to us. How is your intimacy with God? Do you know him? Do you share your heart with him? Do you read his word and engage with him in prayer? See, in all relationships, cultivating personal relational intimacy requires time together, and it's no different in our relationship with God. Well, here's another implication. By saying that he wants a relationship like marriage with us, God is saying he wants a relationship with us that has absolute exclusive priority. In the Old Testament, we see this come through in God's absolute opposition to idolatry. In Hosea, for example, God says, I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. We learn that God is a jealous God. He wants our undivided loyalty. Typically, open marriages don't work very well. There's a kind of jealousy in marriage which is completely appropriate. And our God is a jealous God. He wants us to be exclusively his, which means that he and only he can be our God. We must not give ourselves to another. No created thing can compete with the intimacy and depth of relationship that God calls us to have with him. Does your relationship with God have that kind of absolute and exclusive priority in your life? See, that's the relationship that God wants with us. Have we come to terms with this as individuals and as a church, that God wants a relationship with us of incredible intimacy, unconditional commitment, faithful exclusivity? Is that the relationship we have with God? Or is he more like an idea or like some kind of vague power that we try to tap into a couple of times a week or like some great mysterious being who can't ultimately be known because after all, he's infinite and we're just finite human beings. Let God's word and his self-revelation shatter these notions. God says, you will call me husband. He says, I will rejoice over you like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. There's nothing abstract or vague or detached about this. This is the language of deep personal love and intimacy. This is the relationship God wants with us. But all too often, it's not the relationship he has with us. In the Old Testament, we see the problem 
reflected in the relationship between Hosea and his wife, Gomer. Do you remember what happens there? God tells the prophet Hosea to go again and pursue his adulterous wife. Why? Because Hosea, in order to be a prophet and in order to really communicate God's word and will and character, has to understand what it's like for God to be in a relationship with his people. And God is saying, this is the best way for you to understand what it's like to be me. You must pledge yourself unconditionally to this woman who will not be faithful to you. You must pursue her and love her even when your love is unreturned. You must go after her even as she goes after other lovers. And so Hosea and Gomer live out this little parable of God and his people. God is saying that this is a picture of us with him. We are Gomer. It's a harsh comparison because Gomer is this adulterous harlot. But that's the point. You know, Martin Luther said that every time we sin, we're breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods besides me. In other words, we can only sin as we value something more than we value God. We can only sin to the extent that we're looking to something or someone other than God for our ultimate fulfillment and security and meaning and purpose and joy. Sin is always so much more than just breaking rules. It's always deeply relational and intensely personal. It's betraying the one who loves us perfectly. So in the Old Testament, idolatry is adultery. That becomes the governing metaphor of unfaithfulness. It's not just that we rebel against God or wander away from God. Every time we sin, it's like we're throwing ourselves into the arms of other lovers. Jeremiah picks up on this metaphor and says to God's people, you have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. You have scattered your favors under every green tree. And remember, this isn't just an Old Testament reality. In Revelation, we've already heard Jesus rebuke the church for abandoning its first love. And then the whole problem of adulterous idolatry is taken up in chapters 17 and 18. These are chapters we skipped over with language about the great prostitute, Babylon. The question is pressed to God's people in the most vivid way. Who will we be? Will we be the adulterous prostitute or will we be the bride? Will we be Babylon or will we be the new Jerusalem? And which is it? Well, if we're anything like God's people have always been, it's a little bit of both. It's faithfulness mixed with unfaithfulness. It's fidelity and infidelity. It's loyalty and disloyalty. There's a gap between the relationship with us God wants and the relationship with us God has. He wants a good marriage. He has a bad marriage. He wants our total commitment and love. He gets portions of our hearts here and there. And so now let's look at what God does about this difference between what he wants and what he has. How does he close the gap? It's beautifully reflected in the marriage between Hosea and Gomer. Do you remember what happens? First, Hosea goes. God tells Hosea, go show your love to your wife again. Yeah, you have every right to divorce her. Yeah, you have every right to leave her and never look back. But don't do that. Go get her. And then second, Hosea buys her back. 
Gomer is up for sale. Scholars tell us it's likely that she was being auctioned in a public marketplace, stripped and on display, humiliated and shamed. And Hosea, at great expense to himself, pays for her redemption. And of course, this is one of the things we remember and celebrate in Advent. You know, time and time again, God sent prophets to call his people back. But now we, we know that he has come himself. That's why, we t- that's why we sing songs about Emmanuel, God with us, his love relentlessly pursuing us. I mean, Jesus had the audacity to take up this Old Testament theme of um, God being the bridegroom, and, and Jesus applied that to himself. Remember that one time when the Pharisees came up to him and they asked, why aren't your disciples fasting, Jesus? And Jesus answered by saying this, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast when he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day, they will fast. Weddings are a time for feasting, not fasting. They're a time for celebration. Jesus is comparing his mission to a wedding. It's like Jesus is saying, if you really understood what I'm doing, if you really saw the good news of what I'm doing for broken and hurting and sinful people, you'd be celebrating too. He's saying, I'm the bridegroom. He's saying, I'm the true lover of God's people. It's like he's saying, I'm the true Hosea, and I'm here to win back my unfaithful bride. And at what cost? Everything. It costs Jesus his very life. The true bridegroom lays down his life for us, freeing us from our slavery to sin. He makes our unfaithfulness his own. On the cross, as the Apostle Paul says, he becomes sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The bridegroom has come and he has redeemed us. Why? Because this is his love for his bride. Yes, he loves us as his disciples, and yes, he loves us as his friends. He loves us as his sisters and brothers. He loves us as his own body. All of that would be enough, but scripture doesn't stop there. It tells us the Lord loves us as his bride. Family, this is his love for you. You are dearly beloved, not because of anything you've achieved or earned or done, but simply because. The bridegroom has come, and he will come again. And when he comes, he'll be bringing this party with him, and we will feast with the lover of our souls, and finally, we will be satisfied. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Family, in all of our uncertainty and all of the unknowns about what lies ahead, we have the most certain promise given to us by our bridegroom, this God who says to us, I am with you, I am for you, I love you forever, and I will never stop. Whatever happens, whatever you have to endure, whatever dark valley you walk through, I will be there. You are the beloved. Believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.